Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Paula really wanted me to call today's sermon Aquaman, but that didn't feel entirely appropriate. So we went with Take Heart, It Is I. Uh, This is a really familiar passage. It's one of those passages from Scripture that even if you're not a believer, you're probably at least vaguely aware of the story that Jesus walked on the water. And so as a result of it being really familiar, we can kind of dismiss it. And I really hope we don't do that this morning. Um, So this is going to be the end of Matthew 14. But to start, before we pray, I actually want to read to you from the wrong passage. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 8. And we'll be looking at verse 23 through 27. It's going to feel pretty familiar since we're looking at Jesus walking on the water, but this is a different different account, different thing happening here. So this is Matthew 8, starting in verse 23. It says this, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Let's pray and then we'll get into our message for today. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for this opportunity, and Lord, we ask for your help. I ask for your help, Father. Let the words that I speak today be exactly those that we all need to hear, that you intend for us to hear, uh, myself included. Lord, help us to be able to answer this question. What sort of man is this? Help us to see you more closely, and we ask that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So who in here, let's, let's make this like school, raise your hand if you've ever been in a really, really bad storm, like the kind of storm that you are legitimately concerned for your safety, okay? I was thinking about this throughout the week. I can't remember if I've been in a storm like that, which probably means I haven't been, or I just have a bad memory, which is also possible. For those of you who raised your hand, raise your hand again if you've been in that kind of storm while in a boat. Anybody been in that kind of storm while in a boat? Okay, some of you, yes. All right. I'm sure that like magnifies the terror of it quite a bit. All right. Well, what I want us to do to start is kind of use our imaginations and set the stage for what's happening here in Matthew 14 and also in Matthew 8, the passage we just read. Because like I said, it's a very familiar passage But I think if we exercise this gift of imagination that the Lord's given us, and we try to put ourselves in the place that the disciples were in, it's going to help us understand things a little bit more. And we're going to do that by looking at geography. I'm so excited because today's sermon involves maps and the laser pointer, okay? So Robert Brockman did miraculous work back there getting these maps ready. So Robert, can I see that first map of the Sea of Galilee? All right, this is the Sea of Galilee in Israel. And on first glance, it 
you know, just in the context of this map, it looks like a reasonably respectable body of water, but it's actually pretty small. So from north to south, make sure this works, it's only 12 miles from north to south, and at its widest point, it's seven miles wide. That makes it, when you do like the math and figure it all out, it's approximately around 64 square miles. So that's not a very large body of water. From any point on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, you can look and see the other side and see the surrounding countryside. If we were trying to think of like in context of maybe something that we know that would give us an idea of how big this is, it's roughly the same area as Seneca Lake in New York. That's the closest one I could find to us that's about the same size. So some of you are maybe thinking, I don't know Seneca Lake. I don't know where that is or I haven't been there. So let's look at the next map. So do you see Seneca Lake? No, okay. Seneca Lake is that one right there. This skinny little one over here. It's real long and tall. It's, the, it's one of the Finger Lakes in New York. Now, obviously, when you look at this map, the one you notice right away is Lake Erie. So Lake Erie, if you've been there, it kind of feels like you're at the ocean because it's big enough that when you stand on the shore of Lake Erie, you can't see the other side. But I don't know about you guys, if you've been there, with the exception of the fact that you can't see the other side, it really still feels like a lake. Because if you've been to the ocean, Lake Erie doesn't have the same effect on you. It doesn't have the same power that the ocean has. The winds are different. The waves are different. And so you stand there and you look to the other side and you can't see it. So you have that same kind of like water goes all the way to the horizon kind of feeling, but it doesn't feel like the ocean. It still feels lakey. So what's hard for me to imagine is that, can I see that map again, Robert? Lake Erie map. It's hard for me to imagine that if this lake that's so giant still feels like a lake, then how in the world does the Sea of Galilee, which is roughly the same area as that tiny little lake, figure into not one but two accounts in the scriptures of things that are happening on this body of water that involve large storms? Like if it's so small, how does this happen? Well, science, right? So there's this really cool thing. Can we get the map of the Sea of Galilee back? There are two reasons uh, why we have these accounts of storms. Well, the first one actually has nothing to do with weather. It just has to do with the fact that boats have come a long way since the first century, right? I don't know a whole lot of boat, about boats, but I have a friend, Nevin, who owns a boat, and he tells me that the definition of a boat is a hole in the water into which you pour all your money, okay? <laughs> that is like the full extent of my knowledge of boats, but I am aware at least enough to know that boat technology has progressed a lot over the past 2,000 years. And so if you were on the Sea of Galilee on a modern day boat, and you encountered one of these storms, you probably wouldn't experience the same kind of terror that the disciples did uh, when they were with Jesus. But the other reason is because of what happens geographically in this area. So the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest body of water in the world. It sits at 696 feet below sea level. To give you a little context, right now where we're sitting is roughly 1,300 feet above sea level. The lowest lake is also in Israel. It's the Dead Sea, which is technically a very large lake, but it's the lowest one. But this one is 696 feet below sea level. And generally speaking, I'm not a scientist, but generally speaking, no matter where you are in the world, elevation, the lower you are, 
the warmer it is relative to that place in the world. And the higher you are, the colder it is relative to that place in the world. Well, Israel is already kind of a pretty warm area of the world. So when you get to an area that's almost 700 feet below sea level, the surface of this water is pretty warm year round. And then, I don't know if you can tell from this map, but all of this like darker area shows mountains and hills. On the west side of that lake is the area of Galilee. And the hills of Galilee raise to 1,400 feet above sea level. That's higher than where we are right now. And on the east side, not only what's pictured, but off the map, because I didn't make the picture big enough, um, is the Golan Heights. And those mountains rise up to 2,500 feet. So if you're doing the math in your head really quickly, that's somewhere between like 2,000 and over 3,000 feet of elevation difference between the surface of that lake and the land surrounding it. So when that happens, when you have a situation like that, you get this really cool phenomenon. Now my, my family has been fortunate enough to travel around a bit. And two years ago, we were hiking in this place in the Pacific Northwest called Hurricane Ridge. And we were right up on this ridge line and we witnessed this really cool thing. We were, we were standing on this trail and you could see to the left and right, like forever, all these mountains. And these clouds were rolling in from our right. And as they got to us at the ridge, we expected them to pass right over. But instead, they, they encountered that ridge and they just like turned and went straight up in the air. And it's because there was like a different weather system on this side of the ridge than there was on this side. And those two things, it was like an invisible wall. They just impacted each other and they couldn't mix. And that's what happens on these mountains all around the Sea of Galilee. But every once in a while, that cold air gets under that warm air and it sneaks down the mountainside and it's like pouring water out of a bucket. It just pours in to this huge valley and all that cold air coming down and hitting that warm air on the Sea of Galilee is basically like what happens with hurricanes in the, in the Caribbean. You have cold air mixed with warm water and it creates sudden and incredible changes in the weather. And that's what's happening. So when you hear about these storms, these accounts of storms in the Gospels, these are real things that actually happened and are still happening today. So knowing that, use your imagination, close your eyes if you want, and put yourself in their position. You're in a very primitive boat that's only driven by oars or a sail. It's the middle of the night, you probably have no light on the boat because the wind is enough that you can't keep a lamp lit. You can technically be able to see the shore and there might be lights from surrounding towns, but we're not talking about like street lights in the first century, right? So towns would not have had very much light and with a storm going on, you probably would not have seen much of that, if any at all. So you're on this lake and it's pitch black. And if we're talking about the situation in Matthew 8, the waves are rolling and you're being tossed back and forth and you're probably soaking wet from waves pouring over the sides of this boat and you think you're going to die any moment. In Matthew 14, it doesn't kind of indicate that it was so much of a big storm, more of just like strong winds and they've been working against this thing for hours and hours and hours in the middle of the night in the dark and they're exhausted. All of that is to say these 12 men have had some really bad experiences in boats, right? And the crazy thing is that Jesus put them in those experiences. He was intentional about putting them in that place. And that brings us to our first point. I have five points today. And the first one is 
Jesus sets us up. Jesus sets us up. The commonality between those two passages is that Jesus put the disciples in both of those situations. Let's look at Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. It says this, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, meaning they're trying to go one way and the wind is blowing directly against the way they want to go. So they're working against the wind constantly. So it says immediately, that's drawing your attention to what just happened. Remember that right before this, he just got, finishing, he just got finished feeding the 5,000, which was really more like 10,000. He just found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been killed. Even with that knowledge, he has taken the time to care for and feed all of these people. He's probably exhausted. He wants a little bit of time to himself. Jesus did that often. He would step away and go be with his father. He wants to have that time. He's probably going to use that time to mourn the loss of his friend. But even then, with all of that going on, he's still thinking about and caring for the disciples because he knows exactly what's going to happen with this boat and with this situation. So he sets them up. He puts them in the boat and he sends them on their way. And then he goes off to pray. Now, what he's doing here is he's doing something that later on in his ministry, he's actually going to pray and ask the Father to do this for his disciples, but he's starting to do it now. And what I'm talking about is in, in the Gospel of John in chapter 17, uh, there's what's called the high priestly prayer. And Jesus prays in John 17, verse 17 through 19, he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's praying this for these 12 disciples, but it's a prayer that extends to every believer in Christ. And this process, this promise of sanctification is something that happens for every believer. Let me, let me show you it in two other places in Paul's letters. Paul writes about this lots of times, but I want to draw your attention to two places where Paul talks about us being sanctified without actually using that word. So he says this in Philippians 1.6, he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. A good work has been begun in all of those who trust Jesus. And Paul is confident that that good work that has been begun will be brought to completion. So there's a process going on in our lives. We're being changed by this work of God in us. And then he says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. One, one degree of glory to another means we are one way, and we are being changed daily into a different way, a different kind 
until we are being made into the image of Christ. That's the process of sanctification. And that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples in this moment. He's intentionally making them get in this boat to put them in a situation that is going to be very sanctifying, right? So he dismisses the crowds. He sends them on their mission. He goes away to pray, knowing full well what's going to happen. He sets, sets them up and he sets you up. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. He does not, when I say he sets you up, it's not that he gets some kind of like devious pleasure out of seeing us struggle. That's not what I mean when I say Jesus sets us up. What I mean is he puts us in situations for our good and his glory so that we can grow and we can learn and we can be transformed. He changes you because he loves you. He's putting you in those situations because remember, he prayed that prayer to his father, sanctify them in the truth, and that prayer was answered. And so because he loves you, he's sanctifying you. So because of that, sometimes he puts you, like he's doing with the disciples, sometimes he sends you to places, he sends you to do things when you're already tired and you're already weary and the situation is difficult and it's dark and stormy and it's the middle of the night and you'd rather be lots of other places. But he's doing it because it's good for you and it brings him glory. He stretches you. And the way he stretches us is he puts us in situations that the only thing we have left to do is to rely on him. When in reality, that is what we should have done in the first place, right? Now, I want to take a, just a moment to talk about this idea, this analogy of storms, okay? Because I'm very concerned, if I haven't made it clear already, I'm very concerned that because of the familiarity of this passage that we're going to miss some things. And one of the things that happens in 2023 is that the idea of storms as, of an, uh, as an analogy has become kind of cliche in Christianity. And this is totally just my opinion. I'm not getting this from the Bible at all. But I think that that is because it gets way overused in like modern Christian music. And that's not a knock on modern Christian music. Like I like modern Christian music. But it's just like an objective fact that there's a lot of lyrics about storms and rain and floods and like wet weather generally. <laughs> like, I don't know why, but there's like lots of Christian music with those lyrics. And so we hear this analogy all the time. But here's what I want you to remember. In this passage, these guys are dealing literally with a storm. Like Jesus is interacting with them and he's putting them in this situation with a literal storm where their lives are literally in danger. How do we apply that? Because it's not probably likely that we're going to apply this directly the way it happened to them. We're not going to be in like an actual storm, maybe, but more often we're going to be in like other kinds of storms. What do those storms look like? Well, storms are things like broken or breaking relationships because of our relationship with Christ and how that affects other people around us. Consequences from really terrible decisions that we've made or other people have made difficulties that we encounter from real like spiritual opposition when we're just trying to obey what Christ has called us to and there are things that try to come against us. Those are what we're talking about when we're talking about storms. Things that like just break your heart. 
But I want you to remember that no matter which one of those types of storms perhaps applies to your life, this statement from John Piper is true. He says this, there is no ministry for Christ's sake and no storm in Christ's service where every need will not be supplied. Don't get, don't get lost in the double negative there. What it means is whatever the, the Lord puts you in, he will supply every need. He will supply everything that you need. And above all, the need for Jesus himself. He supplies everything you need and our greatest need is him. And he will not withhold himself from us. That brings us to our second point. I'm going to jump ahead a few verses, but I promise I'll come back to the ones I skipped. If you look in chapter 14, verse 29, it says this, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, okay, so now just remember, if you're not familiar with the passage, they're out on the boat, they see Jesus walking on the water. And now Peter says this, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So the second point is this, it's kind of a mouthful. Faith is faith in Jesus' words, not faith in our faith. Do you see the difference? Peter gives us a really great example of this. And I've screwed this up so many times in my life. There are so many times when I thought, all right, if I can just believe hard enough, then whatever that I hope will happen will happen. Or if I can just like flex my faith muscles enough, then whatever. If I, if I, if I, like it's always like if I. That's where we screw up. Peter doesn't do that. He, said, he knows that if he is going to do something as completely ridiculous as literally walking on literal water, that it's not going to be because of what he believes. It's going to be based on what the Lord commands him to do. So he's not getting out of that boat unless the Lord commands him to do it. And so he asks, and he has this perfect response, Lord, if it is you, command me. He needed to hear that command. And then once he heard the command, there was no hesitation. He stepped out of the boat. He didn't work up his faith first. He just needed to hear Jesus say, come. So faith was, the, the faith that Peter exercised was faith in what Jesus said. It was not in his own ability to believe it well enough, okay? Now, I want to be clear about this because there is a place for faith. Like, we are called to exercise faith in Jesus' words. But my question to you is, what kept Peter afloat? When he got out of the water, got out of the boat, what kept him afloat on the water? Was it his faith? Well, his faith played a role in that. But ultimately, what kept him afloat was Jesus, because Jesus commanded him to come. And when Peter obeyed that, it was the power of Jesus that kept him afloat on that water. Now, with that in mind, I want to hopefully take a load off of a lot of people in here. Because when we have a gathering of believers this large, it's almost guaranteed that whether you've known Jesus for 10 minutes or you've known him for 10 decades, there are probably people in here who are thinking, what if he 
sends me away? What if he rejects me? What if on judgment day, when I meet him, he says, depart from me, I never knew you? What if I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe well enough? There's got to be people who have that thought. Well, can I tell you, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. The reason you do that, and the reason I've done that, the reason you do that is because your faith is misplaced. Your faith is focusing on how you believe and how well you think you're believing rather than focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he said that is true about you. Because here's the thing, if you have seen the truth that you are a sinner separated from God, that you have no hope apart from a Savior, that you cannot accomplish getting to God on your own. If you've seen that, and then you recognize that that Savior is Jesus Christ, and you've put your trust in Him to do what you could never do yourself, and you recognize that He's your only hope, then you can rest. You can rest because he's done all the work. He says his burden is light. And what that means is not that there is like no burden. It just means that the burden is light for us because he's born, he bears the burden himself. He already bore that burden on the cross. It's already done. He has purchased for us all that we need for eternal life. And he commands you to rest in that just like he commanded Peter to come in the water, come out to him on the water. Consider Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. He says, and this is the command that he gives to all of us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." You can rest in what he's done because you can trust what he says. Amen? Amen? That brings us to point number three. Jesus' words are truer than what we see or feel. Jesus' words are truer than what we see or feel. Peter's contribution to this story in Matthew 14 is not done. Okay, his interaction with Jesus continues in verse 30 and 31. And I always feel bad for Peter when I read this, but let's, let's read it. It says this, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now here's why I feel bad for Peter, right? Like this is one of those stories that we've been hearing since we were little kids in Sunday school. And with the exception of Jesus like walking on the water and kind of having that picture in our, in our mind of Jesus walking on the water. At least for me, the only other thing I remember about this passage is Peter being told, oh, you of little faith, right? But remember, there were 12 people in that boat and only one of them actually thought to get out of it, right? So Peter exercised amazing faith. And then he gets out there on the water and he gets distracted and he starts to sink, and the Lord says to him, oh, you of little faith, which is true. It was a legitimate 
justifiable thing for Jesus to say. Just makes me feel bad for Peter a little bit, right? Yes, it's true. He got distracted. He started seeing the wind. He started seeing the waves. His attention got drawn away from what he was laser focused on before, which was the words of Jesus. His attention started looking at other things. But then what happened? He began to sink. He didn't sink. He began to sink. I have never in my life jumped into a body of water and then like began to sink, right? And either have you. Like you jump into water and you disappear below the water because that's the way physics works. But, but Peter in this moment is interacting with the one who invented physics, whose word created physics, whose word in this moment supersedes physics. And so he begins to think, begins to sink. Like Peter, we often get distracted. We exercise faith, but we get distracted by what is happening around us. And our attention uh, is drawn away. And in that confidence that we have in Christ and his word as we exercise faith turns into fear. And even in those moments, Jesus is still full of grace and mercy as he allows us to begin to sink, right? This reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was, was uh, the son of this man and he, he went to his father and he asked for his inheritance and the father gave it to him and he went off on his own and he lived wildly, lavishly on all kinds of worldly things until all of his money was spent, he had nothing left and he found himself eating with pigs. He was in the pig trough eating the pig's slop because that's all that he had. And that is mercy. That is God's mercy and grace. Now, does anybody want to eat pig slop? No. Does anybody want their life to look like that? No. Is that a good situation? No. But is it God's grace? Yes, because he was still alive. And he still had the opportunity to turn back he still had the opportunity to repent, and he did. So the Lord allows us in his goodness to sink slowly. When we doubt, when we fear, when we go our own way, he allows us to sink slowly so that it produces in us a cry for help. Peter did this exact same thing. He gets out there on the water. He looks around. He gets distracted. He starts to sink. He realizes that he's in trouble. What does he do? Lord, save me. And when he cries out for help, the Lord immediately grabs a hold of him and lifts him back up. The thing about this part of this passage that involves Peter, everything from when he spoke to the Lord when he was still in the boat to this moment when the Lord grabs a hold of him to pull him back up, this whole passage about Peter isn't really about Peter. It's about Jesus. When he was in the boat, the faith that Peter exercised was because of the words that Jesus said. He, he exercised faith in Jesus' words to come to him on the water. It was based on what Jesus commanded. When he got out there on the water and he started to sink, it was about Jesus and his grace and his mercy allowing him to sink slowly. When he cried out for help, 
It's not about Peter crying out for help. It's about Jesus being the rescuer who was there to immediately grab a hold of him and pull up the one who needs to be rescued. And remember that it's Jesus who put him there in the first place, right? He set Peter up for this. He put him in that position to teach him this lesson about himself. It's all about Jesus. It's always all about Jesus. So why would we ever doubt? But still, we sometimes do. And that brings us to my, what am I up to? Fourth point now? Fourth point. Jesus is who he says he is. I'm going to sneak in three sub points on this one. Okay, I don't want, this is like hugely important that Jesus is who he says he is. But I don't want to spend a ton of time here because we've actually been saying that over and over again as we go through this, uh, the gospel of Matthew. We've seen again and again and again proofs that Jesus is who he says he is. But I do want to point out three things that I think we could possibly miss in this particular passage. The first one is, do you notice that Jesus kind of like stacks the deck against himself in this passage? Here's what I mean. Um, Did you ever like play a game with a kid? And as an adult, you like, you know, you're playing with a kid. So you kind of like alter the game to make it harder on yourself and easier on the kid. Like, don't we just like kind of generally do that? Except for maybe Nathan. Maybe Nathan doesn't do that. <laughs> but, but we kind of like, we, you know, if, if there's like a point you have to get to, if everybody has to get to 21, you make it so that the kid only has to get to seven, but you still have to get to 21. You make it harder for yourself. And then what do we do? We make it harder on ourselves and then we go and win anyway right? Because we kind of like have this thing in ourselves that like we're playing against this kid, but I'm going to beat him anyway because I want him to know who's the better player here, right? Don't we do that? I do that, okay? That's what, that's what Jesus, I think, is doing here. If, if we go back now to halfway through verse 23, it says this, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Well, look what he did. He went off by himself. He knew what was going to happen. He put him in the boat. He knew what was going to happen. He went off by himself. He waited till the boat was a long way off. This account is not only in the Gospel of Matthew. It's also in Mark. I think it's in Luke too, but it's, it's also in Mark. And in Mark, it says, that he saw them from the shore and that they were battling against the wind, which means when he saw them, it was still light out. He could see them out on the lake. But he waited. How do we know that he waited? Because it says in Matthew that he came to them in the fourth watch of the night, which is like two, three in the morning when it's dark. So Jesus set this up to like have all the difficulty in place. The wind was blowing. They were a long way away. It's totally the middle of the night. That's when he comes to them. He does that kind of like how we do it when we stack the deck against ourselves and prove to the kid that like we're the better gamer, right? He does this to show them that there should be no doubt that he has all the power and the authority. The second thing I want you to see is this. This is verse 26 and 27. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now consider this. 
There are things in this world that are not terrifying unless they show up in places they're not supposed to be, okay? So many of you remember the Sandine family, who I hope is watching online right now. Um, they used to attend here and they moved to Colorado. They're one of the missionaries that we support here at Saving Grace Church. They have three lovely children, Zaria, Jared, and Devin. I am not terrified of Zaria, Jared, or Devin. They're nice children. But if I woke up in the middle of the night tonight and those three kids were standing in my bedroom, it would be horrifying because they're, they show up in a place that they're not supposed to be. Well, that's what's happening here. Je these disciples are in this boat and they're not afraid of Jesus, but when they see him walking on the water in the middle of the night, it's unnatural and they're terrified. And Jesus gives them the perfect response when he sees their fear, because he says something that we read in English, and so we kind of miss the importance of it. He says to them, take heart, it is I. But those three words, it is I, in the Greek, and I'm gonna pronounce it wrong, but it's the Greek words, ego, I, me. And that phrase is the same phrase that Jesus used when he said, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of the I am statements of Jesus. And it's also the exact same phrase, though it would have been spoken or would have been written in Hebrew originally. It's exactly the same phrase that Moses heard when he was speaking to God in the burning bush. And he said, who should I say sent me? And God from the bush said, tell them, I am sent you. Ego, I me. So when Jesus says that, take heart, it is I, what he's really saying is take heart, God is here. God is here. Do not be afraid. That would have had a huge impact to first century Jewish men. And the third thing I want you to see is actually the reason why I read you the wrong passage this morning. We started in Matthew 8. Remember when Jesus uh, calmed the storm. And in Matthew 14, 32 and 33, he says this. And when they got into the boat, okay, so this is after Jesus and Peter have had their interaction out in the water. They get back in the boat. The wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, do you remember the passage we read at the beginning from Matthew 8? Jesus is asleep. They come and wake him up. This huge storm is happening. He gets up. He calms the storm with a command. And their response is, who is this man? Who is this man? They have, still have this question. Now, since then, from Matthew 8 to Matthew 14, and I literally just went through the Bible and looked at my headings, right? You could do the same thing. This is what they've seen Jesus do since Matthew 8. He's cast demons out of two men and sent them into a herd of pigs. He healed a paralytic. He raised a child from the dead. He healed a woman who had suffered for 12 years. He gave sight to two blind men. He caused a mute man to speak. He gave the apostles authority over demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out and they actually experienced that authority and cast out demons and healed people who had diseases. They've seen him teach in such a way that like completely confounds even the most learned people of the day. 
They saw him restore the, the hand of a man who had a withered hand. And most recently, they saw him feed thousands of people with just a few fish and loaves. But it's here in Matthew 14 when he's walking on the water and he proclaims himself to be God that they finally get it. Instead of saying, who is this man? They answer with, truly, you are the son of God. And that brings us to our final point as we start to close. The final point is this. Reach for Jesus all that you can. Reach for Jesus all you can. I hope this morning that whether you just heard the account of Jesus walking on the water for the first time, or if you've heard it a million times and you've got like a picture on your wall at home of Jesus walking on the water, like if this is totally familiar to you, no matter where you are, I hope that you're in the same place that the disciples were in, where you're sitting there and looking at who Jesus is and saying, truly, you are the son of God. If you are, this is what you should do. Reach for Jesus all that you can. Because when you see him for who he is, nothing should keep you away from him. At the end of Matthew 14, the last couple verses, there's this extra little account that when I read it, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I read it, it feels like kind of an unrelated tag onto the end of everything. Like, what's this all about? Um, it talks about what happens at their next stop after the, all of the events on, on the water. And I'm sure there's way more in this passage that I'm going to do justice with in the amount of time that we have. But I do think that if we look at it, it gives us a little insight into how we should respond when we've had one of those truly you are the son of God moments. And if you're having that today for the first time, like listen up because this is what you should do. Like if you're seeing Jesus for who he is for the first time, listen to what this says. In Matthew 14, at the very end, 34 to 36, it says, And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Okay? I'm going to ask the band to come up as we finish. But did you hear what it said about the people where they landed? It said they recognized him. They recognized him. Do you recognize him this morning? Have you seen who he is? Do you know who he is? Have you seen a little bit more today what he's like and what he's done for you? I hope so. But if you have, here's what you do. You get more of him. You reach out to him. You try to get close to him. You make every effort that you can, even if it's just to touch the fringe of his garment. And here's the thing. He doesn't withhold himself from those he loves. And he loves you. So you make that effort, and he will give you much more than just the fringe of his garment. He will, he will not withhold himself from you. Encountering Jesus changes people. It says of these folks in Gennesaret that when they touched the fringe of his garment, as many as touched it were made well. 
they were changed. Jesus, Jesus changes people. It's the mark of those who know him and know who he is. You can't know Jesus and not be different. It's impossible. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. And my prayer for you, let's stand together. My prayer for you as we go from here is that you will see Jesus for who he is and you will make every effort to reach out to him because you will not remain the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so, so good to us and your words are true. We thank you, Lord, that your words are reliable. We thank you, Lord, that your word is trustworthy. Father, we thank you for this account that we read this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that you have provided everything that we need in every season of our life, in everything that you've called us to. Father, you provide everything that we need. And the thing that we need the most is you. So Father, my prayer for every person here, including myself, is that we would see you more for who you are, that our eyes would be open every moment. And Lord, that you would fill our hearts to overflowing, that we would be just filled with a motivation to know you more and to reach out to you. And Lord, we know that when that happens, you will not withhold yourself from us. So Father, I ask that you would change us, that you would take us on with you as you have promised to do. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's sing.